um, preaching through the book of Romans. We, we go through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter. So today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. And Paul has been making it very clear in the first seven chapters of Romans that our justification, that means our being made right in the sight of God, and our sanctification, that means our living right for God, is nothing to do with us. It, it is not by our doing or by our will or by our strength. It is strictly by faith in Christ alone. And so in our passage today, Paul will contrast the difference between walking in our flesh and walking in the Spirit. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Spirit says to us in Romans 8, 5 through 11, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Will you all pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, we proclaim here that your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those words that we have memorized and perhaps said ourselves this Lord's Prayer, God, we, we admit that oftentimes we don't really want heaven to be on earth. We would rather act like heaven doesn't exist. Act like all there is is the flesh. All there is is the earthly, the unspiritual. But that way of thinking is wrong. It's demonic. And God, I pray now that as we look at your word, as we look at what the Spirit says about Jesus, God, that you would set our minds on the Spirit of God, would set our minds not on things below, but on things that are above, where the Lord Jesus is seated today because we know that he resurrected from the dead 2,000 years ago. That's our hope. Lord God, as you open your word to us this morning, and you give the words to speak, to say, to us through your servant, Pastor Greg. God, may you open our hearts to this word. May you break through into our lives that we might think are earthly and un unspecial and there's nothing extravagant going on, but the very fact of what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross and the resurrection, it changes everything, every single moment of every day, especially this day. So I pray, Lord God, teach us from your word. Help us to believe in the gospel and to set our minds not on the flesh, but on the spirit. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow. There are 8 billion people 
in the world, 195 countries divided into 11,000, over 11,000 people groups. That means different languages and cultures. And, and then you can basically subdivide that, that into many categories. I can list hundreds of categories of the kinds of people, right? Uh, there, there are male people, female people, old people, young people, tall people, short people, skinny people, broad people, rich people, poor people, loud people, quiet people, hyper people, calm people, nice people, and mean people, attractive people, and less attractive uh, people, strong people, weak people, skyline people, gold star people, of which the first is superior. Um, <laughs> Christian people, right? Hindu people, Muslim people, Buddhist people, Jewish people, Mormon people, and we could just go on and on, but at the end of the day, every human fits into one of two categories found in the Bible. You're either saved or lost. You're a sheep or a goat. You're dead in Adam or alive in Christ. You're a believer or an unbeliever. Or as Paul will tell us today, you're either walking in the spirit or you are walking in the flesh. But that's it. They're, they're basically, out of all of these different distinctions we can look at, it all boils down in the end to two kinds of people. Saved and lost, sheep and goat, those in the spirit, those in the flesh. That's, that's it. And so what I wanted you to ask yourself as we go through this section today is of the two, which are you? Of the two, which are you? So Paul shows us the two categories here in verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So right there are the two groups. Those of the flesh, they're acting according to the flesh or in relationship with the flesh. They are related closely to that. Right? They're acting, therefore, according. They're behaving. They're living their life. That's what it means to, to act according to something. You're living your life. And your thought process is all about that. You're, you're thinking that way, and you're living that way. We understand the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you are totally consumed with the flesh. That's the first kind of person. What is the flesh here, by the way? And again, the flesh is not just this physical body. We're not dualists. We're not, we're not just saying that, well, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. We're not saying that at all. It's not this physical flesh. That word flesh there really talks about this deep, dark nature of humans, this fallen part, this sinful part that wants to rebel against God, right? Weymouth uh, basically talks about this and, and translated this verse like, like this. Their thoughts are shaped by the lower nature. So that's the flesh, that lower nature in, in all of us, that what we would call a depraved, sinful, sinful nature. But look at the contrast. Those in the spirit act, live, behave according to the spirit, and they think about spiritual things. So there's night and day comparison here, compare and contrast, right? You've got the flesh, and you've got the spirit, and they are incompatible. They are, they are distinct and different. And basically, I, I want to talk about this word mindset, set their minds on the spirit, or they set their minds on the flesh. That's a mindset he's talking about. Another word for mindset is worldview. 
It really does come, come down to, to this. The difference between, you know, how do you know if somebody's walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit? Their worldview. That's it. I mean, it, it's talking about a worldview. What is a worldview? Here's a here's simple definition of what a worldview is. The overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. It's almost self-explanatory. The worldview is how you view the world. That's it. I mean, that's a worldview. How do you look at the world? What lens do you put on and look at this world? What are you looking at the world through? What kind of lenses? Everybody's got one. Everybody has a worldview. Now, you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Greg, I thought we were talking about spiritual things this morning. I thought we were talking about faith, not worldviews or lifestyles. And that's our problem, folks. For years, we have made a distinction between religion and faith and, quote, real life, right? We've had this sacred, secular divide where my faith is this secret, personal thing. You know, the, the thing that my, my belief system is, that it's, it's in here. It's private, just for me. We see this in politics when some political leaders would say, well, Christians have a right to worship. Everybody has a right to worship in their house of worship the way they want to worship. Just don't let that infringe upon life. Just don't let that be seen outside of your place of worship. Well, folks, that is not what walking in the Spirit's about. That's not what being a Christian's about. And Paul's very plain here. He's saying that is just not the case. Your faith is not just some personal thing that makes you feel good inside and you can do it secretly. Genuine faith in Christ, being a genuine, authentic Christian, again, which our world for years has seen many, many counterfeits. And people are confused. I understand that. When people say they're Christians and there's no change in their life, there's no passion for what they believe. It's just like going through the motions of dead ritualism. And yet Paul says, no, 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 this is not the case. And he makes this distinction all the way through Romans that there will be a difference in those who are dead in Adam and those who have been made alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes it clear. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Something new has happened. Faith in Christ is dynamic. It is not static. It is dynamic. Paul said this, right, in Romans earlier when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ and what he's done for us. For it is the power of God unto salvation. That word power in the Greek is dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. Folks, if a stick of dynamite goes off in your hands, you will not be the same. You will not be the same. You will be forever changed. And this is what the gospel is. This is what Paul's trying to tell us. A person who professes faith in Christ and yet has no dynamic about them, no dynamic change in their lives, in their worldview, in the way they think, therefore in the way they live, we must question, has the dynamite ever gone off in the first place? So this is important that we understand, folks, that, that, that we are not just professing something with our mouth. We don't just say a prayer and go to church and get our name on a church roll and once or twice a year, go to church in a suit and think we've done our duties and think that's Christianity. That is nothing but dead religiosity and formalism. Salvation, being born again as Jesus calls it, that is transformational. 
And it affects every inch of your life. That's what he's saying here. So our worldview is who we are, folks. And if I am in Christ, my worldview, I am looking through the lens of his word and his morality. Every decision I'm making, I'm not making my choices based on some lie of culture that is all about serving its flesh, its self. That's what Paul just said. Those who walk according to the flesh, it's all about them, and they're thinking all about them. And so decisions are made selfishly. It's all about me. God is not in the equation because we are God if we're in the flesh. That's man's problem. He thinks he's God. We are our own rulers. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't have to submit to anybody else. I don't have to follow anybody else. That's what Paul's dealing with here. That's the flesh. That's what it means to be in the flesh. The opposite of that is being in the spirit, where now I am looking at the world through someone else's eyes, not my lens, but God's lens, his morality. It's his spirit guiding me in my decisions. I am, I am, I am based on the objective truth of the God of this universe who made the universe and can't change. So therefore, that's the question. Where is your worldview? It's where your faith is. Where's your faith? Do you believe in the objective, never-changing truth of God? Or or do you believe in the ever-changing ideologies and philosophies of the flesh? All right. The The two categories are pretty plain. You're either in the spirit or you're in your flesh. But connected to those two categories are two destinations, folks. This is why it it transcends life as we know it. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life. Total contrast, once again. To set your mind and to live for the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. Really what Paul's doing is he's rephrasing what he said in Romans 6.23. It's the same thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's it. That's two, two choices again. In my flesh, I'm dying. My life is really, I'm just a walking dead person. I'm, I'm existing, but I'm dead. I'm dead spiritually. I'm dead to God. I'm without hope in this world. I don't, I don't even realize it. But then there's those who have been made alive in Christ by faith in him. And they're walking after the spirit. They have everlasting life. Not just life in this world, but everlasting life. There it is. The two identities. The two identities determine the two destinations. But then he goes on in verse 7 and 8 and really drills down into what it is to have a fleshly mindset. And this is, again, where we miss it on the gospel sometimes as far as presenting people their need. We don't drill down enough to show you are in the flesh. Don't you see? Don't you see your faulty mindset and and your need, your your deficiency? You are empty. You're bankrupt. You need someone to come and fill you with what they can offer, not what you can offer yourself. And so Paul, he, he... drills down to this, and he explains it more. Here's what a fleshly mindset is. For the mind that is set on the, on, on the flesh is hostile to God. 
get that. By the way, we are all born in the flesh. <laughs> all of us come from Adam, and as Paul's already made so clear, we all have sinned in Adam. And thereby, we're dead in Adam, spiritually, and even in this life, it's meaningless. And our hearts are hostile to God. That's the key right there. Because we're in the flesh, our hearts are naturally hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Our hearts do not naturally submit to God's law, so if we're in the flesh, we're not living for God's law, we're living for our law. And then he goes on to say, indeed it cannot. So our hearts are hostile to God, our heart does not submit to God's law, and it cannot submit to God's law. Very interesting. It doesn't want to submit to God's law, so we're not willing, nor are we able. That is a weak, sad place to be. But that's what every human has to understand. This is where we are in our natural selves, in, within our natural heart, in this flesh that is hostile toward God. And by the way, these, we're not talking about people. This is not describing people who are scumbags morally, uh, who rape and pillage and steal and, and don't pay their taxes, you know, whatever. This is... This is talking about people who go to church. We're talking about people who occasionally read their Bible here. We're talking about people who would call themselves a, a good citizen. Because what we're talking about here is something that goes so deep. It, it, it goes way deeper than our outward expressions of, quote, duty and good deeds. We're talking about going deep, deep, deep into the very, very heart. The motives. Why are you going to church? Why did you read your Bible today? Why did you help that old lady across the street? Was it so everybody could see what a great person you are? Are you trying to please God, trying to please others? Whatever. I mean, are you trying to feel good about yourself? That's not taking away the fact that our hearts are still rebellious toward God. Many of us worship God the way we want to worship God, and we put the parameter around it, and, and we say no to many of his other commands because it's our moral therapeutic deism. We'll go to church, we'll do good things, we'll feed the hungry, feed the poor, blah, 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 but I'm not going to give my whole life, I'm not going to submit my whole will to God's will. I've got my own thing going on, my own dreams, my own plans. So that's the flesh. Our flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't really submit to God from the depths of our heart. And it can't. And look what it goes on to say. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is some serious stuff that we really don't ponder these verses a lot, right? These are, these are strong words. The natural man in his flesh can not please God. No matter how religious he is, no matter how many good deeds he does, in our flesh, we cannot please God. So again, the mindset of the flesh is basically this, having a desire for the things of this world that are in opposition to God's moral commands, and it, and it doesn't have to be blatant commands. It's just all of his commands from the heart. Willingly saying, I submit to all of your will, God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 puts it like this. We have to get this. God tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's, again, the choice set before us. And the world, by the way, here doesn't mean trees and mountains and the people that we interact with. That's not, it's talking, again, about this godless ideology and philosophy that is in rebellion against God and his morality. That's what it's talking about, that kind of world, a world that desires things, the, the world of our flesh that desires wealth and popularity and, and uh, pleasure, and we're going to live for those things. And an ideology that says, you know, again, nobody tells me what to do. And if I want to be what I want to be, I'll be that. There is no standard outside of me that says, this is it. These two choices. No, we say, I want a third choice, or a fourth choice, or a fifth choice. That's a hostile heart toward God. Not submitting, not humbling ourselves and admitting there's a higher law than us and ultimately hating God's moral laws. Let me give an example. Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 3. This, again, speaking to, of David, but also looking past him to, to Jesus. This is a prophetic word, literally. Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 3. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us get rid of these constraints. Man, the church is just too strict. The, you know, the, the, the word of God, too many rules, commands, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I understand that some of those can be man-made, some of those are, are, are we we. we we could go all day on that, but I'm talking about the simple moral commands of God. Let's just start with the big ten, right? The, the ten commandments. And what this is talking about is men do not want to submit to those things, to God's morality. They want to covet somebody else's wife. They want to covet somebody else's husband. They, they want what this guy has or that person has, and they will kill for it if they have to. Maybe not literally, but they'll kill somebody's reputation to get that promotion at work. They'll make this person look bad so that they can look better. This is what I'm talking about. This, this is what this verse is saying. This is how we rebel. We don't want anybody telling us that those things are wrong, that we should be able to get what we want. I should be able to call myself what I want to call myself with whatever pronoun I want, despite the fact that the sovereign God of the universe has established truth, and it does not change according to our whims. And that mentality where a world will thumb their nose at God and say, we will determine how many genders there are, not you, the creator. We will determine what marriage is, not you who instituted it and defined it already. This is what it's talking about. This is man's flesh in opposition to God. We'll break that. We don't want that. Stop preaching that. Stop saying that. You're the enemy. You're hate. That's hate speech. And yet it is not. Now, it can be. I, I am first and foremost to say that there is hate speech in the church that needs to be called out as sin. But it is so loving to tell somebody the truth. What good is it for me to condone somebody's sin if they're blatantly in sin and make them feel good for a few years in a false identity and then die and have to answer to this judge. By the way, that's if you believe the Bible. Most churches don't believe the Bible. Again, it's just moral therapeutic deism, so they can cave at any, any, any doctrine they want. 
Homosexuality acceptable? Sure, it's fine. Oh, okay. Abortion, fine? Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. Stealing? Yeah, you got to steal sometimes. I mean, we just condone all, all the way. Why? Because we really, those churches rather, really don't believe there's a sovereign God who has given us his word that does not change, that declares judgment on all works of ungodliness. It's as the Bible tells us, it has been from the beginning, there's no fear of God before their eyes. The way that seems right unto a man, that's what we follow. That's what the Bible has told us throughout. God knows us. He made us. He knows the depth of our hearts, folks. And there's a way that seems right to man, right to man. And he goes that way. But the end is death, the Bible says. And if we really believe that, I will love somebody too much to call them the pronoun they want me to call them. I will tell them how God made them out of his love and how he graciously will fill their life with more acceptance and purpose than anything else in this world. Or I could lie to them, pacify them, and they die and face eternal judgment of God. Not, not just for those, any sin, anybody, anybody in this world. We must confront them with the gospel of Christ. That's loving. And we need to do it lovingly. Because by, by the grace of God, there we are. We are all sinners saved by grace. But then he moves to the spirit life. So, so this, again, the flesh is just controlled by the flesh. It's all selfish. We understand that. And it's an enmity against God. And anybody who tells us God's word and shows us rules from God's word, the commands of God that go against what I want to do, that's our flesh. But praise God for verse 9 here. Paul is writing Romans to those who already profess faith in Christ. He's writing to a church. So what does he say here in verse 9? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Very emphatic. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that conjunction there is, it can be translated since, which I think is a better translation. It can be if or since. But when you read it, it makes more sense. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since, in fact, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. He's stating a fact here. And he also states this fact. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, man, we've got to grab this, folks. The Spirit of God dwells in you, he says. You're not in the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if the Spirit of God is not in you, you are of the flesh. You're, you're, you're not of Christ. What does that mean? It didn't say, well, anyone who is not a Baptist is not of Christ. didn't say that. Anyone who's not a Catholic is not of Christ. didn't say that. Anyone who doesn't do good work, no. It's anyone who didn't say a prayer when they were 14 at church camp and asked Jesus to come into their heart doesn't have Christ unless you did that. Didn't say that. It says if the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you now, you are not in Christ. I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but then he goes on to say, but 
if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Literally, our spirit, the spirit of God brings life into us because of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness in us, poured into us by the spirit of God. So even though we will die in the flesh, our spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings life to our spirit through the righteousness of Christ. And he goes on to say, if the spirit of him, now here it is, here's where we're talking about the resurrection, right? On this day around the world. But Paul makes the point that that is, that is the power, that is the essence. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is all so different than the four spiritual laws tracks that somebody hands you and says, all right, here's four things you need to know. God loves you, has a great plan for your life, you're a sinner, trust Jesus, and now you're going to heaven. Paul's making it very plain here that a genuine relationship with God and being born again as Jesus commands us, that's the word he used, be born again. That's, I can't do that. Right. Exactly. I can't go to church enough to do that. Right. I can't walk down the church aisle enough times to be born again. Right. Being born is something that happened to me. I didn't have much to do with it. Right. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this thing of salvation. It's totally out of our hands. It's of the Spirit of God. That's what salvation is. It, here it is, folks. If you have the Spirit of God within you and you love Jesus today, that is a miracle of God's grace. The very fact that somebody can say, I really do love Jesus, I really do believe that he died, was buried, and rose again, and I am living my life according to his word because I believe that's his word. I believe his laws are good. I know that I am not. And I know that every day I rely on the cross of Christ and his merits, his perfection. I must have it daily. If you believe that, if you, if you honor him as king and lord of your life, that is a miracle of God's grace that has been worked in you. That's what Titus 3, 5, and 6 makes very clear. Look what it says here. Again, Paul is describing here in Titus what it means to be made alive in Christ. Here it is. Here's how it happens. He saved us. We can stop right there. That's the thesis of the whole point. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything in that verse is pointing to God doing something for us. We did nothing. He saved us. He washed us. The renewal and regeneration of what? The Holy Spirit's work in us. How did we get that Holy Spirit? Did we pray him in? Did we hit the altar long enough and just pray through? That's an old, some of you may know that. Did we do something like that? Did we just stay up long enough and, and quote enough scripture and beg God enough to where we earned it? No. 
He was poured out in us in Christ by God. It's all him. So really, because of this gift of regeneration and renewal worked in us by the Spirit, we act according to the Spirit and think according to the Spirit. You see, there, there it is. We put the cart before the horse. We, we try to say, okay, I'm going to be a Christian, so I better start acting and thinking according to the Spirit. So I'm going to try really hard to give up stuff, and I'm going to try really hard to start acting and thinking according to the Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what everybody thinks I should do. That's not it. No. First, the Spirit must do a work in your heart. Break open that stony, hard heart. Open those blind eyes. Change you. Then you act according to the Spirit which is in you, and you begin to think differently than you used to think because now you're thinking according to the Spirit that was in you. This is, you say, well, that sounds, sounds a little different than what I thought. I thought it's up to me. The only thing that I have to do with salvation and the only thing that I bring into salvation is the sin that needs to be forgiven. I provide the sinner. I'm good at that. You are too. You hypocrite. No, I'm kidding. We all, folks, that's the whole point. That's what Paul's been trying to say. We are all bankrupt and have nothing to bring to the deal. God does the whole deal for us. That's why it's a gift, and that's why it's called grace and not of works. And yet, lest we jump on the air and the false teaching of, oh, once I'm saved, I'm always saved, so I can live any way I want. Paul's already dealt with that in verse 6 when he said, what are you, what are you talking about? Should we keep sinning that God's grace may abound? God forbid. No, you don't keep sinning. How can you? This is the real point here. If you have been miraculously born again by the Spirit of God doing a work in your heart and changing the whole way you think about life. And the things you love now change. And the Spirit is in you, and you are thinking according to the Spirit. You will not desire to sin anymore. Does it mean you, you won't sin anymore? No, we're still in a fleshly body. There's two natures now. But my desire, first and foremost has been changed by the Spirit, and I want to please God. I want to please God. There's a change. Again, back to the dynamite, right? Something has happened to me, and I didn't do it. And it's a process. You said, well, I did go to church. I heard the gospel. Yes, amen. Somebody shared Jesus with me. Amen. That's what we're supposed to do. That's how God does this. That's how he works by his Spirit. You've got to hear about Christ. And you've heard many of you all your lives. And there's a process that's happening, but that process is not you somehow earning it. It's the Spirit of God chipping away at your heart, changing and transforming you by His power until one day you realize, I was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? That's the idea. And this message, by the way, is, is so foolish. You say, you should have told us that before you wasted hours sitting here listening to you. <laughs> the message of the cross is foolish. So much so that the flesh cannot believe it. That's the point Paul's making. This whole Christian thing of a guy who died on a cross and was resurrected, and you believe that? No, no, no. It's foolish. That's what the majority of this world thinks. It's always been this way. It's an embarrassment. It's a stumbling block. God ordained it that way, and the Romans fulfilled it the way God 
purposed them to do with crucifixion, which, which was made to embarrass and shame publicly, to show their power. They had people hanging all over the, the empire, naked, to shame and to embarrass. And that was Christ. He took the lowest form of murder and execution in, in the history, basically, of mankind to save us, yes. But he suffered that shame. He knew it. He knows what it is to be shamed and rejected and embarrassed and betrayed. But then to believe that, to hear that preaching, our flesh says, no, no, no. We're proud people, folks. We're arrogant. We're like, I'm not going to, I'm going to worship a guy that actually failed. He came to be a Messiah and he ends up on a stake naked. I'm going to, that's God. You see, that's what it sounds like to our natural reason, our natural flesh. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ and him crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, the Jews, again, very proud. It's a stumbling block. You, you, want, me to, you want me to put my faith in that as the Messiah? Even 2,000 years later, people look at us. You believe that? And here it is. Here's what I'm saying. You say, why are you pushing all this? Because, folks, I'm trying to remind us and let us know that there's no way in the world that any of us would be sitting here today saying we love Jesus, singing praises to him, loving him, genuinely loving him, and, and ordering our lives according to him if the Spirit of God didn't cause us to do that. That's, that's what it's saying here. And it's happened throughout the centuries that we see these lives change. Every apostle, man, they didn't even believe, his own brothers didn't even believe he was the Messiah. Let's face it, folks, when he was alive, walking the earth, his own brothers, James, John, they didn't believe on him as a Messiah. They didn't believe until after some big event. You know what that big event was? The resurrection. All of a sudden, now these guys who doubted him, they die for him. And somebody once said, how, how in the world Josh said it yesterday. How in the world, if, if, if you've got brothers, how many of you have brothers, right? A, a, a brother. How hard do you think it would be to convince them that you're the Messiah? <laughs> you know your brothers, right? So do you get it? I mean, so much less get them to believe you're the Messiah and then die for that belief. And that's what happens. That's the evidence we see of the power of the Holy Spirit of God applying the evidence of truth of the resurrection of Christ. But it has to be the Spirit of God because people will not accept it. They will make fun of it. They will badger it. That's what Jesus said, by the way. He was shamed openly for us, and if we follow him, what we're doing is we're identifying with his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his shame. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So sign here and follow me. And, and that's not the gospel we hear. We hear, you want more money? You want fame? You want happiness? Wealth? Trust Jesus. He'll give you all the good stuff. He loves you. That's it. That's all we hear. That's not the gospel of the Bible. The gospel of the Bible is that God transforms us with that truth, changes us so radically that we are willing to die for him. We die. Our reputations can die. We could care less what people think about us. We only care what God, our Savior, Master, and Lord thinks about us. I want to talk about something that made this really evident back in the second century when, when Christianity was new and they were hearing this and believing this because the evidence was there that this guy was reported, reported to rise again. 
Well, who would believe that? Those who the Spirit of God opens their eyes and gives them a faith that goes beyond human comprehension. That's who. In 1857, a piece of graffiti was discovered in a building near the Palatine Hill in Rome. And this building, this site, was Emperor Caligula's palace for some time. And after his death, it was transformed into a boarding school for imperial page boys and slaves. And it's around that second century time that this graffiti was made. I want to show you a picture of this. It's, it's called the Alex Aminos Graffito. The Alex Aminos Graffito. I guess we've got it, yeah. So, so this is it. On the left, you see the actual original, and then they've made an artist rendition so you can actually make it, make it clear. This is arguably the first representation of Christ on the cross known to man. So again, second century, and, and here's what's so significant about this. Obviously, you have a man on a cross with a donkey head representing Christ. And you have a man under the cross with his hand raised to worship him. And the inscription in Greek says, Alexaminos worships his God. So clearly meant to be a disdain and reproach, a, a, a scoffing of Probably one of those students in the school who was bold enough, because of his faith and because of the spirit living in him, he couldn't help it. He worshiped Christ, identified publicly with Christ, unashamedly, and he took the scorn. But this is what the world thinks, folks. This is it. You worship a donkey. It's a joke. And yet, people willingly for centuries have continued to stand up and say, no, I do believe that. I will confess him. I will live according to his laws and I will die for him. What in the world would make that happen? The power of the Spirit of God in us. The transforming power of God. So this is where I want to close. We're going to Hebrews 12, 12, 12 too, because we can endure this, folks. We can endure it. Because I'm warning us, because in, age, in the age we live and in, in the years to come, to be a Christian is going to mean a whole lot... It's going to be a whole lot different than it has been for decades in America. There's no more cultural Christianity. It's no longer the cool thing and accept, acceptable thing to do. If you're going to be a Christian now, it's going to be like the New Testament, more so than it ever has been. The heathen rage against God. They're passing laws against his morality. Left and right, right? We're promoting things that God says is wrong. We can only have one master. If we are genuine believers, we will, by God's grace, continue to say, I must obey God rather than men. I must obey God rather than men. We have people in this church that are having, choosing at this point, to resign careers that they've worked in for 20 years because of the pressure to conform to a godless ideology. And what they have to say is, I will trust God and obey God rather than men. I will walk according to spirit rather than the flesh. Why? Because of the dynamite that went off in my heart because of the gospel and the spirit of God working in me. That's why. Hebrews 12, 2. We think and set our mind on the things of the spirit. That's the word of God. And we look at what Jesus did. And we see the joy that he had in the midst of the shame. And, and look at this. 
It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith was not made by us, folks. Again, another reminder. Jesus is the founder, author, beginner. That's, that, that's what that means. He began our faith, and he's the perfecter, finisher, completer of our faith, is, is what those words are saying. And we have to look to him, therefore. He's the source. He's the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He's headed to the cross, but he sees joy. How is that? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did he do that? How did he look past the cross and see joy and despise the shame being spit upon by those who he created, naked before them, to the open shame of the world, and yet he sees joy? Jesus looked past the cross to see its fulfillment in us, those who he was dying for. That's the glory of this. This is how secure we are, those who believe on Christ. John 6, 37 and 40 show us that Jesus is confident. It's not my confidence that gets me to heaven, folks. <laughs> it's not my confidence in what I believe or how much faith I have. It's Christ's confidence. He did what he came to do. He knew it from the beginning. He had no doubts that he was going to purchase a people for himself on that cross. It wasn't a trial effort. It couldn't fail. He knew this. And that's what he said in John 6, 37, 40. And this is where everybody in this room today, this is where our faith is if we're a Christian. It's not in the prayer I said when I was 17 or 20 or whatever. It's not in the fact I shook a preacher's hand and walked forward and joined a church. It's not even in the fact that I go to church or read the Bible. It's in what Christ has done for me and what he has promised me as my Savior. My faith is built upon him, not me. Look at verse 37. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's my promise. You're either in the flesh this morning or you're in the spirit. You've heard the news of Christ. He's the only one that can, can change us. He's the, he's the one who paid the price. So I beg you today, by the Spirit's help, by his grace, profess him as Lord. Confess him as Lord. Follow him. Stand for him. Live for him. Fight for him. And if need be, die for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you, Father, that this is not of us. That we are what we are, as Paul said, by the grace of God. So calls us, Father, by your grace to desire you above all else to reprioritize our lives around that which is eternal, not that which is temporary. And to give you glory with all that we have, knowing that you have reserved in glory all good things for us for eternity.
And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.